1 Peter chapter 2. We will begin where we left off last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, will serve as the basis of the morning message, and we ask you to follow along carefully as we read, and then as this passage will be taught, we trust that God will train your eyes and your heart on the words of the Word of God. Verses 9 and 10 of 1 Peter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you agree that America is suffering from an epidemic of low self-esteem? This afternoon, to escape the heat, if you were to find yourself browsing in Barnes & Noble, you would find a self-help section which is overrun with books on how to develop strong self-image. If tomorrow you were to go to Lifeway Christian Store on the east side or Family Christian Store on the east side, you would find a large number of books in that Christian bookstore or those Christian bookstores having to do with how to develop good self-esteem. Well, today, what I want to draw your attention to in this text, among other things, is the way in which Peter begins with verse 9. He says, you are a chosen people. Now, glance up the page to verse 4. If you were here last week, or if you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter, you know what is said in this verse. But let's look at it again. Verse 4 of 1 Peter 2 says, And coming to Him, this is speaking of Jesus, as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus, we are told, was rejected by men. We know that. In fact, this particular verse would suggest that there was not one moment of His being rejected by men, but there was actually, during His three years of ministry publicly, there was an onslaught of attack upon the person of Christ as it was seen in His being rejected. Rejected by men. This is a fulfillment of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. The Bible says about the Messiah that He will be despised and rejected of men. But what's interesting, when I look at Jesus in the Gospels, and I'm sure you would have this same experience or have had it, you don't sense any lack of proper self-image in Jesus. It did not daunt him. It did not bury him, mess his life up when he was rejected by other people. Now, I want to talk to you very personally for a moment. Have you ever been rejected by people? It's no fun, is it? Some of you are living with unresolved wounds based upon the rejection of someone, especially someone whom you cared deeply about. I can remember when I was 14 years old, a time of great insecurity for most people. I was very interested in what other people thought of me much more than I am today. And I remember sitting on a bus traveling back at night from a basketball game in Jonesboro, Arkansas, to my hometown of Memphis. I was sitting there, and 
the boy whom I consider to be my best friend began to make fun of me. And I'm not going to tell you exactly why, but he was making fun of me. It had nothing to do with my character. It had to do with something else about me, my appearance. I'll just go ahead and tell you. And he made some ugly remark to me about my appearance. And he just laughed. And you know why he did it? I know why he did it in retrospect. I know why he did it. I may have known it then. It's because he was trying to impress some girls that were on the bus too. Well, what he didn't know or nobody else knew, I was really interested in what the girls thought about me. And to be put down like that publicly, it was a bummer for me. It just cut me to the quick. Well, I'm glad the bus was dark because I would not have wanted anyone to see my response to the way in which my close friend had treated me. And I I don't think I sobbed, but I know tears came down my face. It's hard to be rejected, isn't it? It's difficult. Now, the good news is that I recovered from that. And even better news, I did not hold it against my friend. I cannot remember being angry at him at all about that. And that was very comforting to me. We are friends even to this day after 50-some-odd years have passed. And we love each other to this day. He's a brother in Christ. He was not at that time, but he is a brother in Christ now. Jesus was able to overcome being rejected and not be bothered by it. I mean, he was human, so let's not think these things did not trouble Jesus when he was rejected. He, he felt the sting of rejection. But what enabled him to overcome was he knew what this text says in verse 4. He was a choice and precious person in the sight of God. When God identified him as the Messiah on the Mount of Transfiguration to Peter, James, and John, you may remember that God says, This is my Son, my chosen one. And here in verse 9, the amazing statement is made about you and me. You are a chosen race. He's talking about people who are in Jesus Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus? Then you too, just like He, are a chosen one. That dignifies you. That gives you a sense of value that is incredible. Allow me an illustration from Scripture. In the book of Judges, you'll know the story of Gideon. Gideon was anything but a mighty man at the time of the beginning of this story. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. Wine presses were underground. Typically, the place for threshing wheat is not underground. Why? Because the goal of threshing is to get the wheat high enough in the air that the breeze will be blowing briskly enough to separate the chaff from the fruit. And the fruit will fall down. And what will happen to that stuff that's unimportant? The wind will blow it away. But here we see, as we look at the book of Judges, chapter 6, that this man... Gideon is shoveling the wheat and he's trying to get it up above ground. It would have been a very humorous sight if we were walking along and all of a sudden out of the wine press comes wheat. The angel of the Lord came to him and spoke to him. And the way in which he addressed him must have really caught Gideon off guard. Because he said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. 
That's the way the NIV translates it. Another translation says, I like this one particularly, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And I can only imagine his looking around to see if there's another person in there with him beside the angel of the Lord. Because he knew that was not who he is in that moment. He was not that kind of man. He was anything but a mighty warrior. He was a coward, actually. But God had a plan for him. And when Gideon responded to this statement, the viewpoint of God, of Gideon, because God had chosen him for a very important mission, and when he looked at him, Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, How can this be? Because I am from the half-tribe of Manasseh. He was not even from a full tribe of the tribes of Israel. I'm from the half-tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my whole clan. In other words, I'm the least likely person for any assignment that would involve leadership. And the angel of the Lord said, but God has chosen you to lead your people against your nemesis, Midian, and you're going to do this. Now, here's the key. You know the rest of the story. If you don't read it, it's an awesome story of victory. How God overcame incredible odds through Gideon to liberate Israel from the Midianites who had tormented them for decades. Here's the key. Notice what he says to Gideon. The angel of the Lord says this, and most scholars would agree, whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, it's what is called a Christophany, which simply means it's a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus to earth. The Lord is with you. That is the key. The Lord is with you. Therefore, you are protected by the Lord. Not only are we who know Christ protected by Him in situations, any and each situation in which we find ourselves, but in addition to that, we are empowered by Christ to accomplish whatever He gives us to do. This not only dignifies us, it gives us confidence. And in whom is the confidence placed? Is the confidence placed in me or in you in certain situations like Gideon's? Absolutely not. Self-confidence is out if we are going to accomplish what God has for us to do. Confidence in Christ is in. Therefore, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Therein, I believe, is the answer to good self-image. It's based upon our relationship to God, our connection with Him. He's present with us. Joshua, who led the children of Israel after Moses died, he had the ominous and prestigious responsibility of leading that mass of people across the Jordan and to settle the promised land, which had been promised by God to Abraham and This was coming to pass. And he evidently wrestled with this too. And I would have too. Moses had been leading the children of Israel for 40 years. Now let's back up a little bit. Did Moses struggle with self-image? Let me ask you, did he? And if he did, how do we know he struggled with it? Because when God called him, what did Moses say to him? Moses said, hey... I can't talk well. I've got a speech impediment. 
Would you please, Lord, send somebody else besides me? He was frightened, wasn't he? He didn't feel equipped for that. Well, over time, God taught him how this works. I'm with you, and I'm going to empower you. And he certainly was with him, and he certainly did empower him. But here's Joshua, who was his protege through that 40-year period of wilderness wandering. He was no spring chicken himself by the time this big move took place across the Jordan. And the over a million people, maybe as many as two million, were going to settle in the land. And this is what God says more than once. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified and do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Why? Because we are part of a chosen people. God has chosen you. If you're a child of God, He handpicked you. And He has a plan for you that's tremendous. We don't know exactly all the details, but we know it's a plan for welfare. The word is shalom, for the best which life has to offer. He has a plan for you. When David is reflecting upon who he is in relationship to God in Psalm 139, he makes this statement. He says, all the days that were ordained for me were written in your book before any one of them came to pass, came to be. So today is a day that was written in eternity for me and for you. If we are children of God, if you know Jesus, you are a chosen one. God has chosen you. And today is a day God has made with you in mind so that you can honor God with your life. We are a chosen race, the Scripture says. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Let's stop there just a moment. I'm going to come back to the royal priesthood in a moment. But think about the idea of being a holy nation. We learned a few weeks back from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, God's command to us is that we be holy as He is holy. And Christ has chosen us to be part of His church so that He can present to Himself a bride who is spotless and blameless when He comes, i.e. holy. And what does the word holy mean at its most basic level? It means one who is set apart for God's use. You and I, if we are children of God, we have been set apart for God's use. That is awesome, isn't it? To know that God has set you and me apart for His use. Studs Terkel wrote a book which in many ways has become the standard when evaluating work from uh, at least a secular position. There's a lot of good truth in it. He makes one statement I'd like to mention. He says, I believe, talking about us as humans, I believe that most of us want a calling, not a job. A job is not big enough for most of us. Isn't that true? What he's saying is we want something that we can invest our lives in that counts. Not simply for now, but forever. And that's the good news of this passage of Scripture. It's the news that's in the New Testament and in the Bible, for that matter, in its entirety. We have been given a calling. Do you know what our calling is 
to do. This passage indicates it, that in the second part of verse 9, you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were not a people. In other words, there was a moment in your life and my life when we were not people of God. We didn't come into this world as children of God. We have become children of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of flesh, nor the will of man, but are born of God. We were chosen by God. Born again is the term which Jesus uses. Born from above is literally what that term born again means when you look at it in its precise translation from the New Testament language. Born again, chosen by God. We're a chosen race. I go along with Mr. Turkell as it relates to the church when we think of the viewpoint that is so commonly held as it relates to the makeup of the church of Jesus Christ. There are two divisions within the church in the minds of most people, probably in this room. One group is very small. The other one is vast. What is that division? Two words. What? Clergy. That's a small group. And laity. You know, for the like of me, life of me, as I've looked over the Bible, I cannot find in the New Testament any such dichotomy between people who are clergymen and people who are laymen. The primary word to describe church in the New Testament as far as its makeup is the word laos. Laos, the nation in Southeast Asia, is actually a transliteration of that word from the original language of the New Testament into English. Laos, Laos, the people of God. We are all the people of God. Our gifting makes us somewhat different. But inevitably, when you get down to the bottom line, all of us who have been chosen by God to be a part of this great body of believers worldwide and which extends back into eternity and forward into eternity, back into history, forward into history, we make up the church of Jesus Christ. All of us do. So where did this come from, this misunderstanding? I would go so far to say it is a heresy. You know what a heresy is? It's a false teaching. But it's been embraced. We have to go back to the first few centuries of Christianity. As the church fathers were finding a way, as far as they were concerned, that they could deal with pressures from outside, the pagan world was intent upon squashing the work of Christ from pressure from outside. And then the more insidious pressure came from inside the church with all the false teachings. What they did, they decided to establish an hierarchy. Do you know what the word hierarchy means? I mean, you have an idea. Layers of authority till you get to the top, whatever the top may be, in any institution. In the church, it would be a bishop or the pope. It could be somebody outside the local body. In a local body like ours where we believe that every church is to be self-governing, you might think it would be the pastor, the senior pastor, or maybe the group of elders. 
as you look up the hierarchical ladder. Do you know what the word hierarchy comes from? It comes from two Greek words, the language of the New Testament, which means rule by priests. That's what it means. That's where the doctrine of the church began to take water very quickly. And it's high time that that is done away with it. To understand that all of us who are part of the body of Christ are part of a royal priesthood. What is a priest's responsibility? The priest's responsibilities are many. We saw last week a priest is to put men in touch with God and God in touch with men. Priests are bridge builders. We're people through whom people can come to know Jesus and through whom Jesus wants to represent himself to people. So we understand this. But also, what we understand is that priests in the Bible, the Old Testament system, were people who were engaged in leading in worship, too. Their whole lives were devoted to worship, especially as it related to sacrifice for sin. There are two things that I want to highlight in the remaining moments which we have today. The first of which is the church is to be a worshiping community. God's people are a priestly people called to offer Him sacrifices in worship. We are to bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of God. When we gather together, we worship the Lord through song and prayer and other means. Giving, all those things are means whereby we make sacrifice to the Lord. A token of our appreciation to God for who He is. Praise qualifies as a sacrifice when it's continual because it calls us to die to ourselves and our perception of things when our circumstances are not very good. God's people, you and I, form a royal priesthood. Did you know you're a priest? You are. That's what the Bible says. I'm a priest. Why? Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm in Christ. My calling is to be a priest. My job is to participate in worshiping the Lord and helping others to worship the Lord. You might be surprised, Romans 12, 1, in the King James Version, the version which I have learned it from, says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The phrase reasonable service translates a word which means actually your act of worship to God. So the idea is that all of life, all of our lives as people who know Jesus, is all of it is to be an act of worship. Everything you do and I do is to be an act of worship. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it how? To the glory of God. That's the worship of God, glorifying God. We glorify God in the way in which we live. All of it. You eat. Today when we go to lunch, we need to eat to the glory of God. Tomorrow when you go to work, realize you're on mission. 
We have a lot of missionaries associated with our church, and for that I'm grateful, very grateful. But do you know what? We need to quit thinking about them as being the only missionaries. Because you and I are missionaries. It's, it's awesome, the genius of God, how tomorrow, I don't know how many people will be here today. We probably had about 175 people last night, maybe 225 in here this morning, probably 350 in the late service. And all those people, almost 1,000 people, when we disperse here, and you go out to your workplace tomorrow, and you go in there, you're traveling as a missionary incognito. Right? Isn't that the genius of God? He's putting you in those places. You're under the radar. You don't wear a collar that identifies you as a clergy person. You don't have, I am a missionary, tattooed on your forehead. You're going in there, but God is going to use you there. If the world were to be dependent upon pastors and preachers and teachers to get saved. The world would have been saved by now. There have been so many preachers, and there, some people say they're a dime a dozen. Well, I'm not going to agree with that. But what I know is they are gifts of Christ. We read that, didn't we? I, and, and I'm a little reluctant to say this, but it's the truth. I am a gift of Christ to the church. I belong to Christ, and He has given people like me who have a gift for teaching to help people to understand but that's the function which I play. It's not the thing that defines me, though. What defines me is I'm in Christ. I'm part of a royal priesthood. Do you know what defines you? That you are in Christ. And you are a priest of Christ. And He wants to use you in your life as a worship tool. To worship Him. To glorify Him. And please remember that worship is not just something we do between the hour of 9 and 9.30, or 10.30, I should say. You wish it were 9.30, 10.30 on Sunday morning. It's what we do all the time. We're to do it in our homes. We're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God in our home. And as parents, you are to be this kind of priest to your child. Your vocation of homemaking if you are a stay-at-home mom. Awesome responsibility. Awesome place of ministry in the home to your children and to the rest of your family. Some of you are involved in public service through voluntary organizations. These should not be used as a substitute for fulfillment. Look, your fulfillment is to be found in being a priest of Christ, a servant of Jesus. You're part of a royal priesthood. But when you're involved in what used to be called PTA, I think it has another name now, but it's essentially the same, or you're working for the American Heart Foundation as a volunteer, or Little League, soccer, whatever, look, you're there on mission. View yourself as such. That's the way God views us. Jesus sends us into the world. But there's a dimension of our service which, in fact, includes the church of Jesus Christ. In a church our size, there's no way that we could hire enough people like me and the other people who are hired to help facilitate the ministry of the church through you. Remember, Christ gave some to be pastors and teachers. Why? 
for the equipping of the saints, that would be others than the pastoral people, equipping of the saints for what purpose? For the building up of the body of Christ. How can the church grow unless the equippers are equipping instead of doing all the ministry? The reason we have not grasped this concept any better than we have is because of insecure pastors who are so needy emotionally, they have to be the center of attention all the time, and insincere lay people who mouth commitment to Jesus but don't have a commitment probably because they don't have a vision that's spelled out for us in Scripture about penetrating the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. All of us are. But God wants a mighty army of His people moving out. And in the church, we're to care for each other. Pastors are to care for the flock. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's very clear. Other places in the Bible. But you know there are more people to be ministered to than I and the other pastors put together can minister to in this church. It's not that we shirk our privilege of ministering to the flock. But we just can't do it. But God can do it, and He wants to do it through you and through me. All of us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, this is what we read. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Now, that was not written to the leadership of the church at that time. It was written to everybody. See to it that no one falls short of the glory of God. Do you know what the word see to it sounds like in the original language? Let me just say it. Episcopeo. The word episcopal comes from that. The word episkopos is the word for overseer or bishop. We all are to exercise a responsibility of oversight in each other's lives. Not to catch people doing wrong. That's not the point. The point is we're to care for them like a shepherd cares for his flock. That's true for all of us. It's not just simply for a handful of people who've been set apart for pastoral ministry. We must go beyond what happens here what we call Sunday worship, where we're more an aggregation than a congregation. We will become a true church, the people called out of darkness into His marvelous light, when we really share our lives with each other in fellowship. The word fellowship simply means sharing of life. We're to share with our brothers and sisters what God's teaching us from the Bible when we read it. Share it. God didn't teach you something to keep to yourself. He wants us to share it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. God will build people up just the same as He's built you up from the Scripture when we share the Scripture. Try to link up with a small group in the church. We have plenty of opportunity in this church for that. Bible study on Sunday morning. We have triad groups, which are designed for disciple-making, discipleship, men's and women's. If you want to get connected to one of those ministries, it's possible. Many of you have been or are currently involved. We have all kinds of opportunity. It doesn't even have to be some kind of 
formally endorsed ministry of the church, just hanging out at Corner Bakery or at Starbucks, drinking some coffee over the Word of God with a brother or sister in Christ. Whatever God has called you to do, He has equipped you and called you to see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Share in the Word of God. Pray for one another and share together in bearing one another's burdens. The church is not only to be a worshiping community, but a witnessing community. That's what this text tells us, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There's something wrong with a church which claims to be worshiping God but ignores the local residents who do not. Now, I get out early on Sunday morning, and it's really the quietest time of the week, my whole week getting out. I mean, when I'm driving down here, I'm looking, there's no cars moving. I don't know what it's like when you come here, say at 8.30, to be here for worship at 9 o'clock. But I would imagine that there's not as much movement on Sunday at 8.30 a.m. than there is other days of the week. Am I right about that? People are not coming to houses of worship. And there's a lot of people that we need to reach for Jesus. God wants us to do that. He's called us to be a witnessing community. Foundational to effective witness is solid doctrine. The Bible says in Proverbs 19.2, it's not good to have zeal without knowledge nor to be hasty and miss the way. Many people just get fired up for Jesus. You know, let's get fired up for Jesus. Well, there's nothing wrong with being fired up for Jesus, but you've got to have some foundation upon which that fire will not go out. And that is the Word of God. As essential as enthusiasm is to being an effective witness, it will quickly dissipate unless based on knowledge of and about God. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our minds, is what Jesus says. The great evangelist Billy Graham was asked the question of what he would do differently in his life if he had to do it over again. Do you know what he said simply? Three words. I'd study more. This is the greatest evangelist maybe in the history of the church of Jesus, at least in the 20th century, I would study more. Why does he say that? Because he knows that in order to be an effective evangelist, you've got to have a solid foundation in the teachings of the Scripture, the faith, so that you can communicate it well. Paul was a student right up to the end of his life. We know this because in writing to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, he says... Bring my cloak. He was an old man. His circulation was getting bad. It was cold where he was. Bring my cloak when you come and bring my books. Here was a man who knew that he was on death row, but he said, bring my books, especially the parchments. That would have been what we know as the Old Testament. Bring my books, but especially the parchments. You know, Paul read other things beside his Bible. That was his primary book. But he was familiar, we know this, from quotations he made of common philosophers, people who were poets in his day in the Greco-Roman world. He was a learner right up to the end. I heard about a preacher who was a guest preacher, and 
he was asked by the pastor who was hosting him to pray in their study before they went out into the congregation to do what God had called them to do. And this is the prayer that this guest preacher prayed. Lord, make me ignoranter than a mule. Amen. <laughs> what was he saying? Lord, I don't want to introduce myself into this at all. That's very admirable. This should not be about me when I'm teaching or any other teacher preaching or teaching. It shouldn't be about us. It's about the Lord, right? But then in response, this is what the host pastor said. Brother... That's one prayer God answered before it was prayed. (laughs) Well, we don't want that kind of teaching, do we? We don't want somebody who has that mentality. We want somebody who loves God with his mind or her mind to be teaching us. Well, all your being, heart, soul, mind, and body. The building up of the church depends on how well fed we are. That's what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. Teachers, as I've mentioned, are given to the church to feed the flock. And as a pastor, my primary responsibility, believe it or not, is to teach, to equip the saints, to do the ministry. You're part of a priesthood, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. To do this, a pastor must be a player coach, not the superstar. A coach who is a good coach in any sport or any kind of endeavor, is more interested in developing others than enhancing his or her own prestige. Some of you are Houston Astro baseball fans and old enough to remember that in 1986, the Houston Astros broke a long drought and they won the National League West. Some of you will remember the name Mike Scott. Mike Scott pitched a no-hitter the last game of the season against the San Francisco Giants to clinch that championship of the National League West. He pitched superbly in the first level of playoffs when he shut out the Mets in the NLC series. He tied a record for the most strikeouts in such a game. He struck out 13 batters. That's a lot of batters. There's a possibility of 27 outs, almost half the outs were strikeouts. Yet when the time for the limelight came, the one responsible for Mike Scott's newfound success was not on camera. His name means something to me. Maybe to no one else. His name is Roger Craig. He was Scott's pitching coach. When Scott was acquired to pitch for the Astros, he was just sort of a middling pitcher. Just, just not very impressive at all. He may not even had a 500 winning percentage. But Roger Craig taught him how to throw a split-fingered fastball, transforming him from so-so to superstar overnight and hence the great success which he and his team had. You see, a pastor like me would have as his dream that you would be equipped better to serve the Lord. And you would go out into the world and you would accomplish the role that God has given you to be his witness. The great ministry to which You and I have been called. We're all laymen. Let's get that straight. 
The ministry to which we are called is that of sharing Christ, making disciples of Jesus Christ. To that end, Jesus addressed himself in his closing comments to his disciples when he said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. We have no right to separate the promise of the Holy Spirit from the command to make disciples, to be witnesses, to hide behind our spiritual gift as an excuse for not witnessing is wrong. If the Spirit belongs to all of us, which He does, Romans 8 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he or she does not belong to Christ. We know Jesus, we're chosen. We are royal priesthood. We're a holy nation of people for his own possession. And he has come to live in us by the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit belongs to all of us who are part of this royal priesthood, the duty to share Christ also belongs to us. And let me stop. That word duty is a dirty word, really. It's true, but it's it's just a negative word. The privilege of witnessing to Jesus is all of ours, without exception. The laity penetrates society more deeply than any pastor ever will. This is the way I think of you. I think of you as pioneers standing at the outposts of God's kingdom. You're on the cutting edge every day when you go into your workplace. God has sent you there, and He has equipped you, and you have His presence in you by the Spirit of God. You have the power. Your value as a person is immense because Christ lives in you, and He has given you the great, great assignment. As Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ. Is there anything more dignifying than that? You, if you are indwelled by the Spirit of God, are an ambassador for Jesus. And as I understand it, I don't pretend to be an expert on ambassadorship, but I would say there are two qualities which are absolutely necessary for successful ambassadoring, if there's such a word. And those are enthusiasm and knowledge. You can't be sort of wishy-washy when it comes to representing someone as an ambassador. You've got to be enthusiastic about that assignment. But also, you have to be knowledgeable about whom you are representing and to whom you are going. We need to be students in that way. Let me finish with a summary statement, with some quotations. The solution to the dilemma of high unemployment in the church. There's a lot of unemployment in the church, isn't there? I remember what one man said. He was a serious follower of Christ, and he was frustrated with the low level of expectation that his leader or leaders had for him in his church. He said, too often... Our pastors seem to treat us only as fundraisers or cooks 
and this statement's a little dated, or mimeograph machine operators when our hearts are crying out for a meaningful ministry. Is that your heart? Is your heart crying out for a meaningful ministry? Well, it's to be found in understanding who you are in Christ first and foremost, but that you are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're a priest, a holy nation, a people for His own good use. Let me finish with a couple of quotations. First of all, definitions of the word laity. One from the Oxford Dictionary, the Cadillac of dictionaries. Laity are described as the body of the people, not in orders as opposed to the clergy. Another definition, members of the Christian church who don't belong to the clergy. Dr. Kathleen Bliss expresses a sharp criticism of such definitions of the laity when she writes, these definitions have in them a strong element of over-againstness toward the clergy. The clergy are, the laity are not. The clergy do, the laity do not and must not. Nobody wants to be and is not. Isn't that true? And what the Lord says, you're no is not. You're my priest. And he wants us to understand this more than just in our intellect, but in our experience. Would you bow and pray? Lord, we ask you today that you would emblazon on our minds and our hearts what this text teaches us about who we are in Christ. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for equipping us and empowering us by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're going to ask you now to move in our brothers' hearts, our sisters' hearts, and in our own individual hearts so that we would see ourselves on mission when we leave here today, going home or to a restaurant, some going to work, going to work tomorrow, every day, Lord, we would see ourselves as men and women whom you have picked out to serve you by worshiping together and then scattering into the world on mission as witnesses of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.